Last Lord's Day, we ended our exposition of 1 John 3, verses 4 through 10, with the Apostle John saying this in verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. In addition to generally doing righteousness, as John speaks to the first part of the verse, he also in the latter part of the verse emphasizes the lifestyle of loving your brothers and sisters in Christ as one of the distinguishing marks of the Christian. This would be so appropriate in an epistle where essential Christian doctrine is also seen as a crucial test of whether or not someone can rightly claim to be a Christian and therefore to love one another. The whole of the New Testament repeatedly emphasizes the twin truths of what you must believe in order to be saved and how you express that salvation in loving one another. First John might indeed be the greatest book in the New Testament which emphasizes that which you must believe and how that belief produces in you a sincere love for others. Your orthodox doctrine and your Christian love for others helps make up what it means in 1 John to have the assurance of one's own salvation. And particularly with respect to this distinguishing mark of love for fellow believers, John has a great deal to say in this letter. For instance... Notice briefly the following passages which center in on this point. 1 John 2, 9 and 10. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Look at chapter 3, verse 23. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He commanded us. And chapter 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, verse 12. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Verse 20 of that chapter. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. It could very well be that the heart of John's teaching on this matter, this matter of love, 
even in addition to those passages, might actually center in the entire book right here in 1 John 3, verses 11 to 18. This may well be the heart of the matter. Listen to it. 1 John 3, 11 to 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. I see here four key features in 1 John 3, 11 to 18, by which the Apostle John speaks to the crucial matter of loving others in the body of Christ. Notice the first one in verse 11. Love one another, the command. John says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. I can't help but think that one reason John commands his readers to love one another is because of all the false teachers and all the false professions of faith that had infiltrated the genuine community of faith, those to whom John was writing. In verse 3 of this same chapter, you may remember, for instance, he says, let no one deceive you. And specifically in that verse, he's warning his readers not to allow anyone to make a claim of righteousness whose lifestyle is antithetical to love and good works. You remember in 1 John 2.15, he says we're not to love the world, nor the things in the world, but our love just as this very message has taught us that we've heard from the very beginning of our Christian lives, we should presently and continually love one another. When he says we should love one another, present tense, that means an ongoing, continual relationship of loving one another in the body of Christ. That's over against the false teachers who have been ongoingly and habitually refusing to love one another, at least a Christian love. And there's a vast difference between our love for our brethren and their love, which is a love for the world, a worldly kind of love. John says, do not love the world, but love one another. He's going to say later in verse 17 that if anyone has the world's goods, 
We aren't supposed to hoard those goods, hang on to them with a clenched fist, especially when we see a brother in need, but we should, with the world's goods at our very fingertips, choose to open our hearts to the needs of others, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And because His love abides in us, we're to then continually, perpetually love one another from the heart. It's a command that we're to love one another. And of course, someone might well ask, well, what does that love look like? I mean, I would affirm the command that we are to love one another, but what does it look like? Well, interestingly enough, John says, I'll tell you what it looks like by its opposite. Look at number two, love one another, the contrast, verses 12 to 15. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. John says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John says, you you know how to love others. You're commanded to love others because if I were to show you the opposite of that, the contrast of hate and murder, you would know love by its very opposite. It's a clear contrast between those who are the children of God and those who are the children of the devil. And John says, just look at your lifestyle. Just look at the lifestyle of these false teachers. Their lifestyle is a lifestyle of hate and murder. And then he gives an interesting negative example of Cain, Adam and Eve's son, which is described for us in Genesis 4. Go back to Genesis 4. I want to read this because this is a powerful negative example that John is giving to us here. By the way, this is the only direct explicit reference to the Old Testament in the book of 1 John. And so we would do well to read this together. Genesis chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. Why does John think that out of all the examples of the Old Testament This is the ultimate. Notice what Moses says in Genesis 4.1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he, that is the Lord, had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. 
And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Very powerful, negative example about not only angry and murderous thoughts, but the deed itself. And isn't it so very ironic that after Cain, through his jealousy, slew his brother Abel, that when the Lord pronounced his judgment, he said, it's too much for me to bear, there will be people who will want to kill me. How ironic. And frankly, many Bible teachers have attempted to determine the essential difference between Cain's offering and why it was rejected and Abel's offering and why it was received. But John the Apostle, under divine inspiration, simply concludes this in verse 12 of 1 John 3. We should not be like Cain, listen to this, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And notice the motive. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Maybe it wasn't the offering itself. Maybe it was the motive of the heart. Surely it was, according to John. His deeds were evil. And that because he was of the evil one. Abel had his offering accepted because he was of the Lord. He was one of the Lord's ones. And his offering was accepted because his heart of gratitude by giving the firstlings of his flock was pleasing to the Lord. So much so that the writer to Hebrews says in Hebrews eleven fourteen, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. Now we know why John picked this as a negative example by Cain, because he did not bring his offering by faith. He wasn't trusting in Yahweh God. Abel, by faith, and it was accounted to him as righteousness, was acceptable to God, and his offering was pleasing in the nostrils of God. Cain was a false professor, and Abel was a true man of the Lord. Jude 11 even speaks of Cain when it says, Woe to them! Referring in the context to false teachers 
So there it nails it. We know why. Woe to them, false teachers, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. You see, Cain was jealous of his brother Abel, and because his own deeds were evil, and because he was of the essence of the evil one, he becomes for John the ultimate antithesis of love for one's Christian brother. By the way, John 8.44 declares about the unbelieving Jews of Jesus' own day, this, with Jesus himself speaking, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Cain slew his brother because he was a murderer, first in his heart and then in his actions. And he was a murderer because he was of the evil one, because the evil one himself is a murderer and has been so from the very beginning. Satan, the serpent, deceived Eve. Eve pulled Adam, for his lack of leadership, into the sin of the cunning serpent. And just one chapter in our Bibles later, Genesis 4 the serpent is added again and indwelt the heart of Cain so that he became just like the serpent himself, a murderer and a liar and a father of lies. The devil indwelt murderous Cain and motivated him, to ki- motivated him to kill his brother. You see now, that's why this powerful negative illustration works so well here because that's exactly what false teachers are all about. They're murderous they're liars. They don't tell the truth and they would lead you astray. They would lead you into the destruction of your own soul. That's why this is so powerful. Because the opposite of that is gracious, godlike, God-blessed love. A motivation to love, not to hate, and then to murder. Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you love them? Do you want to take care of them? Or are you jealous of them? Do you seek to meet their needs or do you despise them when they're needy? Abel was probably not initially surprised when his brother came against him because it said they had some level of conversation. But obviously, it got to the point of an argument that led to death. And I suppose that's why John says next here in 1 John 3.13, Do not be surprised, brother, that the world hates you. Don't be surprised, Abel, that your brother Cain hates you. And you go back to 1 John 2, verses 9 to 10, and look at it again for that contrast. Do you remember? Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. You see, if you walk in the light as God is in the light... The world will hate you because they are of the darkness and the darkness has blinded their eyes and they will hate you because you don't love what they love. And if they're initially a part of you, 
These haters will depart from you because they're not of you. And all of these various statements of John so well contrast the murderous hatred of the world and their darkness as over against the gracious love of the Father and the exploding love out of our hearts to brothers and sisters in Christ. John was just following what Jesus taught him. John 15, verse 18 through verse 21. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me, the Father. Well, what will loving my brothers and sisters in Christ show me? All right, I want to love my brothers and sisters, but what will it show me about myself? What will be my own life and destiny if I love my brothers and sisters in Christ? Listen to what John says in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. We know, don't miss that, we know that very important word in 1 John, oitaman, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Look at Cain and Abel. Cain was a murderer. He came from his father, the devil, who was a murderer from the beginning. Therefore, they're in darkness. They don't abide in the light. And therefore, they have no eternal life abiding in them. But we know, John says, remember against the backdrop of these false teachers, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. John is so confident about the truth of this that he says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we continually, ongoingly love, present tense, the brothers. Now, he isn't saying that eternal life is earned by or through loving the brothers, but that we know we've already passed from death into life, and this is evidenced by our love for the brothers. You see, again, it's the sign, it's the assurance, it's the certainty that you experientially have come to know not because you love the brothers as though by loving them you've earned your salvation, but because you've already possessed it through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and therefore because of that heart gratitude to God, you love Jesus and you want to lo- love those others that He loves, and therefore you love the brothers, and it gives the very assurance, the very sign, the very certainty that you indeed possess eternal life. That's not the way you earn it, but it is the way you evidence it to those around you and maybe even at times to your own self. And conversely, those who don't love 
Which means a person who shows no evidence of love for the body of Christ. Indeed, everyone who hates, and that's a present active participle, that is those who are characterized as habitual haters of others are murderers, literally says a man-killer. That's why Cain, again, is the ultimate example. A man-killer. John says it is a fact beyond dispute that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Perpetual love amounts to a sign or an assurance of abiding in Christ and therefore eternal life. While this continual, habitual hatred of others is a sign, an assurance of a murderous heart, which evidences that someone does not have eternal life because they're abiding in death. And by this time, I'm sure that John's readers and yourselves as well as me are asking the question, well, that's a negative example and that's very negative. What about the positive? Well, look at outline point number three, love one another, the comparison. Look at verses 16 and 17. By this we know love. There it is again. By this we know love. That He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You see, the the love which John speaks of here in these verses is to be compared to what Jesus did in laying down His life and love for believers. Now, His sacrificial atoning death is unique. It's unrepeatable. John's not telling them that they ought to lay down their lives just as Jesus laid down His life in some kind of sacrificial atoning fashion, His death on the cross is unique. It's unrepeatable. We're sinners. He's sinless. We can't die for anybody else in that atoning sense. Jesus can. But He's saying, look, compare your love for others by the very love that you see demonstrated by the cross. That's what He's saying. Emulate the very love that you see in the cross when you come to love others. Indeed, John even uses ought language here. Do you see it? We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, just as Jesus laid down His life for us. Listen to how John captures Jesus' own words in this regard. John 15, verses 12 and 13. This is my commandment. This is Jesus speaking. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he says this, credible words, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Someone says, all right, I get it. I see the negative example of Cain. He's a murderer. He's a man killer. He's a hater. It's habitual. He doesn't have eternal life. He's not abiding in Christ. He's in the darkness. And now I see the positive, and it is the very comparison of the love with which Jesus loved us in laying down His life for us. And I see by way of comparison that that's the kind of love, the stretching love 
the hard love, the difficult love, the sacrificial love, to love others in the light of what Jesus did for us. You remember what Paul said in Romans 5, 7 and 8? For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us when we were still in that Christ-rejecting state. How much more then should we love others who are in the body of Christ for whom Christ died and gave His love and life for them? Shouldn't we do in comparison to the great love of Christ what He's done for them, for others in the body? We should. You see, if you're consumed with hatred and selfishness, and you would not even think of doing such a thing as giving your life for somebody else, maybe even in the sacrificial sense of time and effort, all the way even potentially to death on their behalf, not again in that atonement sense, but in the sacrificial love sense that I am doing everything within my power to love my brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, someone's going to say, I don't know of that love and I don't want that kind of love. Now, I want to be loved and I want to be loved by others, but I don't want to exhibit that kind of love. Well, that could very well signal that there is hatred in the heart, selfishness in the heart. But for someone who looks at the magnanimous love of Jesus and what He did on the cross for sinners like us, and when we come into the glorious entrance of redeeming love by Christ and we see the cross for what it is and when we celebrate that cross by virtue of the Lord's Supper and when we are enveloped in that love, we are motivated by Christ and what He did on the cross so that we could then in turn love others with a selfless sacrificial love for which we would say, I'm just trying to emulate what my own Savior did for them. This kind of love, it's actually contrasted once again with this hatred. Look at verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, John asks, how does God's love abide in him? What's the obvious answer? It doesn't. That love doesn't abide in Him. In other words, if, if you're able to help someone, which, by the way, is implied in that phrase, if anyone has the world's goods, that's uh, cross-referenced over to the idea of 1 John 2, 15-17. In verse 16 it says, the material possessions or the pride in possessions, it's actually the same word, possessions there, bios, that John uses right here. If anyone has material goods, if you have the opportunity to help someone with your material goods, your stuff, and you see your brother clearly has a need, and then John says, yet you close your heart against him. Which, by the way, is the translated Greek phrase, klese ta splankna which literally means closes the bowels, closes the intestines, 
which is a euphemistic way to say that you're closing your heart. And that's why it's translated this way in the ESV. It refers to the deepest affections of the heart. You've got the material goods. It's not talking about you being rich. It's just saying that you have the stuff, you have the material, you have the means, you have the way to help your brother and you see him and he clearly has a need and yet when you see the need, instead of loving him enough to meet the need, you actually close your bowels, you close your intestines, you close off your heart and you don't meet his need. You don't come alongside him. You don't love him. He's in great need. But you close your heart off to those brothers and sisters who are in great need around you and of what portion of your material possessions are you willingly, cheerfully willing to give up for them and you close your heart against them and they continue in their needy condition? Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 15. Beginning in verse 7. If among you, this goes all the way back. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing and he cry to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. See the contrast? Open wide your hands. Don't close your heart. And should anyone not receive the point, the very clear point, he says, love one another, the clarification. Fourth and final point. Look at verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. He says, let me clarify. Lest anybody still be confused, lest anyone not understand the very clear point, John doesn't want to be misunderstood about what kind of love he's referring to, so he seeks to clarify things and he says this, and of course you've heard of the phrase, I'm sure, talk is what? Cheap. And actions speak how? Louder than words. John is essentially saying the same thing here. Uses that very familiar term of endearment again, little children. Oh, my little children, we must not love by using our mouth or our talk or our tongue because love talk is cheap. Love talk is cheap. We must love in our actions and according to truth, to the facts, to the way things are, because love actions speak louder than words. What does James say in James chapter 1 verse 27? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this 
to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. He says in chapter 2, Oh, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and any one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled. That's closing your heart against their need without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead this is so clear so compelling and by the way does not 1 Corinthians 13 just jump out at you listen to it verses 1 to 8 as we close first part of verse 8 and verse 13 if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with truth. The truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. My dear congregation, love one another in deed and in truth. Let's bow together. Our Heavenly Father, we have been summarily convicted. For surely there have been brothers and sisters around us with crucial needs. And we have not chosen to love them as we ought. To lay down our lives for them as has happened to us by Christ. Allow us in very clear and unmistakable terms to love one another from the heart and to do so not just in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. As we examine ourselves here at this year's table, May we do so with the confession of our sins and the desire to seek your forgiveness for those to whom our heart has been closed. May we love one another in deed and in truth. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.